Let us ask for the Lord's blessing of the preaching of his word. We do give praise and thanks, Lord God of heaven and earth, that you have given us your son, who as the second Adam did resist the devil and refused to believe his lies. And we pray that you would help us to be the same. By your spirit, enable us too to be able to resist he who is the evil one and to follow you with all joy and gladness. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. So as we mentioned earlier, this is the first Sunday um, of Lent. And of course, Lent commemorates the sufferings of Jesus. But they were not sufferings without purpose, not sufferings without meaning, but sufferings in so much as he took all of our sin upon himself. He took the place of us on the cross. There are 40 days in Lent. Now, it's the reason it's 40 days from the time of, of uh, Lent until Easter is because we take out the, the, the Sundays. We take out the Lord's days. So during your time of repentance, the time where you're thinking of all these things, know that the Lord's Day is a day of peace because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so if you are, say, taking something and it's, your, it's part of your repentance practice to fast, don't fast on Sunday. That's the Lord's Feast Day, the day of His peace for us. Lent reminds us that it is a season of trials and temptations and judgment. The 40 days reminds us of the great price that Jesus paid for our sins. And certainly the 40 days, that number 40 reminds us so often in Scripture how the number 40 is tied to judgment. Right? We have the 40 days and 40 nights of rain when God comes and brings judgment. There's 40 years of the people of Israel in the wilderness. And all of this reminds us, it should provoke us to renew our warfare against sin and against death and the devil. We should be turning away. And of course, we should be doing this every day. Let us once again hear God's word, our gospel passage today. So this is Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only 
shall you serve? Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So I want you to do something. If you are the type of person that looks at your outline and takes notes based out of that, I want you to scratch out that first outline. As I, it, it, it had a good idea. I've given you a little bit of framework already on this, and it's going to become more evident. But I think it's much more important in the very beginning to start with temptation basics. So scratch out what's there and put temptation basics. So first of all, James chapter 1, verse 12 tells us this. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. People of God, God does not tempt us as Satan tempts us. God doesn't tempt us because God does not desire that we do evil. Satan tempts us with the single objective to get us to rebel against God. Satan is trying to seduce us because Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Consider Genesis chapter 2. We heard that read this morning, right? He was a murderer. His intent was to see the death penalty be applied to Adam and Eve. And it has been that way since the beginning. God teaches us in our temptations. And you'll see this and understand this a little bit better here in just a moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 2, it says, And you shall remember that Yahweh your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, and not just because he's trying to come to you and squash you, but to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God placed Israel and each one of us into circumstances to show what the things are that we actually rely on. The idols that we trust instead of him are shown in these times of testing to be useless. God exposes what is in our hearts. He exposes the idolatry that we have become so reliant on. And so as we consider these things, when temptation comes your way and God brings the test to you, it is to point out our idolatry, to point out the things that we rely upon instead of him. And he's going to demonstrate they don't save, they don't keep, they don't provide salvation. So Jesus is the true and faithful son, unlike Israel. Jesus, in his life, is reliving Israel's history. Jesus doesn't repeat the sinful failures of Israel. Jesus is actually reversing these failures. Again, to kind of see this narrative, we kind of talked about this uh, not too long ago, but, but remember, in Jesus' life, there are themes that we can see that point back to um, the history of Israel. We see that Herod kills babies to try to keep Jesus from saving the world. What did Pharaoh do? 
He killed babies. And whether Pharaoh knew his intent or not, it was to prevent the line from Abraham from bringing salvation to the world. We also see that Israel and Jesus both passed through the waters on their way to the wilderness. Israel was led by the cloud and the pillar of fire into the wilderness. And we see that Jesus, after his baptism, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And we also see in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, Though he was a son, this is important, yet he learned obedience by things that he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now I'm going to talk about this a little bit further here when we get farther in the text for today. But this is all important for us to recognize. You know, if Jesus had capitulated on just one point in the temptation, there's no salvation for us. There's no salvation for us. And Jesus himself learned obedience by the things that he suffered. You see, a lot of times we fail to recognize that in the Christian life we are called to confront sin so that we can mature and draw near to God. We are to be growing. If you are stagnant, if you're not confronting your sin, then you are not growing in God. I can tell you as your pastor, and certainly when I work on a text like this, but, but, but every day, I'm confronted as I, as I read God's word, as I consider things, as I close out my day with my nightly prayers, and I reflect on things. I recognize the sins I've committed and the things that I need to do um, to not only repent to God, but to make them right with others. But we need to understand that Jesus is the true and faithful Adam. Unlike Adam, Jesus will not eat the forbidden food and not prematurely grasp for the authority that God has not yet given him. In Genesis chapter 2, God has placed Adam in the garden to learn and to begin his training to become fruitful and to take dominion over the whole earth. There is a time that the that there, there will be a time in the future for Adam to, to eat, for both Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it will be necessary for them. But God has set up a plan, right? He didn't just put them there and there's like two trees. Pick one. No, what he did is he gave them life and life abundantly and said, all these trees, you can eat from all the trees, just not this one because it's not time yet, right? Don't eat that one. But he has given them a feast. Every other plant to eat from, every other tree to eat from. God has provided this. And yet, in all this abundance, in all that God has given, they reject that. And they grab for what is not theirs yet. You see, in Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God commanded them, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, God restricts one food. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course Satan arrives and says, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What does he do? He asks a question. Did God really say that? Is that what he meant? I know he's giving you all this stuff, but is that what he meant? No, no. Then he contradicts God. And he says, it says this in verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in that day you will eat of it. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, Satan then calls into question God's motives. Satan is whispering that God doesn't have your best interest in mind. So don't trust him and snatch what God is withholding from you. Right? Don't trust him. So go grab it. Go seize it. Because God's trying to keep it back from you. Sadly, we see Adam neglect his charge to tend to protect his wife. Adam doubts God's plan and even uses Eve as a test case. Adam eats and all of mankind falls under the curse of sin and death. It's important to note that in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they suffered a death worse than physical death by being excommunicated from God's sanctuary, the Garden of Eden. They were no longer able to be in a right and good relationship with God. They were no longer able to enter God's sanctuary of peace. The cherubim with flaming swords had to be placed at the garden gate. God, in that way, gave the keys to the cherubim and said that he is protecting us from being permanently stuck in this state of wrath. Now I just want to pause right here because this is a real big deal. People of God, the church of our day often neglects the Lord's table. They don't understand that if someone is excommunicated for their sin, if they're cut off from being able to come to the table of peace, that they are now placed into a place of wrath with God. Now of course, We don't do this because we're vindictive. When I say we, I I speak about elders in the church. We do this as a place to bring people to repentance. But it is a death. And surely the day that they sinned against God, they actually faced a death. Far worse than physical death. For they were excommunicated from God in his place of peace. Jesus, of course, is the new Adam, and by the free gift of his atonement, Jesus does away with the condemnation of Adam and brings justification of life. Romans 5.18 tells us this, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteousness, through his righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. We're going to see as we study this passage today that the temptations are progressive. Satan doesn't usually start with the most obvious and blatant temptations. He doesn't throw that at you. That's not how he does it. Right? He does it in a small, progressive way. 
He wants you to not have to make, oh, you know, I know not to do that. And he says, yeah, but here's a little bit right here. Here's the little step right here. Satan is going to go about tempting Jesus and thus us as well in ways that most reasonably appeal to us. Small to large. Basic needs and desires to intellectual appeals to our pride. Satan moves from hunger to testing God and not trusting God. And finally, a temptation to rule the world and get their glory. So let's look at this. So Satan tempts Jesus with physical needs. Now, of course, that's, that's very interesting. You know, we all get hungry. God gives us physical needs and physical desires. We need water. We need food. Frankly, we need human touch. We suffer without that. But we see that Satan shows up in verse 1 of Matthew 4 and says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit of the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. If you could imagine that. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God. Now listen, how does he start that? If you are. Really? Are you? If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to be bread. And I heard one, one uh, commentator say this, that if you, you go out to this wilderness area and you look out, there are all these little stones, and, and from a distance they look like little loaves of bread. And so the, the wilderness area there is filled with them. And if you're pretty hungry and you kind of place that visual out there, you think, well, yeah. Man, look at how many loaves that would be. And you know what? If I did this... This would be Satan saying this. I'd have loaves for all kinds of people. See, it's not just for me. Right? That's what Satan would tell you. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan comes and shows up after a time of 40 days of prayer and fasting. Jesus has undergone the victory of God the Father's declaration of his sonship and his baptism into the priesthood to be both the high priest and the atonement sacrifice. Jesus knows his path and his high calling. Now, I only bring this up just for a moment to tell you that, that I've experienced this. Perhaps you have too. It's after some sort of significant high. We have a breakthrough in our life. God does something for us. We're elevated. We're joyful. And temptation jumps all over us. That's when Satan shows up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pause right here and say, uh, perhaps it's not as true as it used to be, but, but when I was in Bible college some 35 years ago, you, you know when the, the number one area, the number one time when young people would fall into fornication? Sunday night after church. Sunday night after church. That's just a reality. What I'm trying to tell you is this is a reality. We come up on a high. We're feeling good. We're going to see this play out in some of these Old Testament uh, quotes a little bit later. When God gives you all this stuff and you're full, you're going to think you did these things and that you're special and you have all of this. And it's not in your depravity that God has snatched you away from sin and death that we fall to temptation. So Satan knows what he's doing here. Satan shows up and tempts Jesus in the most common and basic way. Here, Jesus, all you got to do is serve yourself this bread. God won't mind. 
And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Now remember, when we see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, God doesn't want us to just consider the precise line quoted, but the whole passage. Jesus directly points to God's word as God's words are actually what sustains us. So we want to remember this. So in in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. And he starts out in verse 1 and he says this. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers. Right there in the beginning, he says what? Obey my commands and you're going to live. You're going to have life and you're going to multiply and things are going to be good. Then verse 2 reminds the people of Israel about the sanctifying work of the wilderness. And you shall remember that Yahweh your God led you all the way these 40 years into the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3 tells us of the provision that God provided for them by giving them food to eat, heavenly gifts of bread. God reminds them of how miraculously their clothes and physical bodies have not swollen up. Their bodies, their feet, it says their feet didn't swell up, their clothes didn't wear out, their sandals didn't wear out. Everything that God was doing for them in the midst of them growing and maturing, God is doing miraculous things for them. We can see also in this passage, if we come down to verse 10, that God says this, When you have eaten and are full, then you will bless Yahweh your God for the good land he has given you. You're going to be up and you're going to be high. And then it says this in verse 14 of chapter 8. It says, When your heart is lifted up, listen now, And when your heart is lifted up and you forget Yahweh your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, After God gives you all these good gifts, does miracles, provides in every kind of way you can imagine. As he's growing you and teaching you to trust in him more and more and more. He says, your heart's going to be lifted up and then you're going to forget Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and from bondage. And that's what happens to us. We begin to think all that we have, all that God has given us, somehow we did this. It is really important for us to remember that God gives us everything, starting with life and his word, his truth sustains us. Next, we see that Jesus resists Satan in testing God's promises. Satan wants that Jesus, he wants Jesus not to trust in God, and so he's going to say, hey, just, just, just test God. Satan sees that Jesus responded to the previous temptation with Scripture, and so Satan schemes to add both a religious context by going up to the temple and by using Scripture to justify Jesus' response to the new temptation. It says in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 4, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you just dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus replies, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
So Satan here, he comes and he does two things. He's going to quote scripture to try to justify sin. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever done that? Using scripture to justify your sin? And he's going to do it in, in a place that's supposed to be all about God. If there's any place God will see you and rescue you and send his angels, it's going to be at the temple. And he takes him from the wilderness, and he takes him up to the pinnacle. And the reason this is kind of a high point <coughs> is that the, the Valley of Kidron comes right off the edge of that wall where the temple is. So it's not just the building structure, which I think if you jumped off that would probably kill you anyway. But it's a little bit higher than that. It's overlooking the valley. And you see, in, Satan is slick. But we need to consider all of Psalm 91. In Psalm 91, God promises to his people that those who dwell in his secret place have protection by being in the shadow that God provides. And of course, he goes through Psalm 91 and he gives all these particular ways that he provides. But remember, it's for the person who's in the secret place, under the shadow of the Almighty, that place of peace, that place of obedience. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not tempt Yahweh your God as you tempted him in Massa. Remember that the word tempt here means to prove or test thoroughly. See, we've, we've taken the word tempt and we've just kind of turned it into this idea of uh, it's a bad thing. But really, to tempt is to, is to say prove out, prove thoroughly yourself. Jesus rightly tells Satan that we do not test God by whatever means we deem is proof of his faithfulness. Uh, let me say that again because this is important. Right? Jesus rightly tells Satan that we do not test God by, what, by whatever means we deem is proof of his faithfulness. Who are we to say what the test of God's faithfulness is? We're going to understand this more clearly when we ask what happened at Massa. Because that's what Jesus quotes, right? Don't tempt the Lord like in Massa. In Exodus chapter 17, it says this, that all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of Yahweh and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses. Now, this word contended here, I don't know that we always think this rightly, but it is really to strive and contend against. It is, it is to come against, almost wrestle, and all, you know, in this accusatory way, what'd you bring us out here for? Give us. They go up to God Almighty and say, give us water to drink. Can you imagine that? To God Almighty? But when we say, hey, I, I don't believe God is, is uh, being faithful to me. We're doing that very same thing, demanding God work out the challenges and trials in our life the way we think they ought to be worked out. And it says there, it goes on to say this, And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you've brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the rod which you struck the river, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, that the people may drink. And so Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribeth because of the contention of the children of Israel, because they tempted Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? The people of Israel did not go and petition to the Lord for water. Instead, they acted like a selfish child. They disregarded all of God's faithfulness up to this point. God had delivered them out of Egypt with miraculous plagues. He had brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. No small feat. He destroyed their enemies. He's actually up at this point already provided bread for them all to eat from heaven. And if this, isn't, if this hasn't been enough, God has already miraculously made waters that were once undrinkable drinkable at the wilderness of Shur. And what did they do? They called out, is God really faithful? And they went up and demanded proof of God's faithfulness. You know, God in his mercy, his response was to stand between the people and the rock and Moses. So you have the congregation, right? You have God, you have the rock, you have Moses. And God told Moses to strike that rock, and the waters flowed, the waters of life that were going to sustain them. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the rock was Christ. Jesus provided the waters of life to Israel in spite of their sin. This reminds us again of Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are in sin when we demand a sign or a proof from God. We need to respond to this temptation by trusting God even when we do not believe that we have gotten what we deserved. Did you hear that? When we believe that we didn't get what we thought we deserved. We deserve nothing but God's wrath and judgment. But in his mercy alone, he has called you before the foundations of the world. As it says in Ephesians chapter 1. When we demand God respond in a particular way, we foolishly act as if we are equal to God. This is a mighty sin in our day. We undergo trials and we say, where is God? Why did I undergo these problems of sickness, loss? and difficulties, we need to repent of contending with God. Now we see that Jesus does not covet and fall to idolatry. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8, it says this, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. So remember, we went from the, the valley in the wilderness there to the pinnacle of the temple, and now we're at the peak of the mountain Right? This is the place to see all the kingdoms of the world. And it says, He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory 
And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him should you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now we're going to talk about this, but I don't want us to neglect this at all. Okay, That, that after Jesus is obedient... And he goes through these challenges. We see the faithfulness of God and that angels came and ministered to him. We see here, though, that Satan now brings Jesus to the peak mountain and offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Satan, just like his temptation of Adam, wants Jesus to prematurely grasp for all the kingdoms of the world and to pursue his own glory. If you recall last week of how Jesus does not strive for his own glory, but gives glory to the Father. Do you see that? And remember how we talked about how that works out in our lives? As we strive to give glory, God's light, God's gifts to others, right? We become glorified here. We see Jesus doing the same thing. Jesus responds to Satan's temptation to worship him. By saying and quoting Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear Yahweh your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. It is in awe and dread that we are to serve. That is worship only Yahweh our God. The devil then leaves Jesus. And the Lord's faithfulness is demonstrated by the angels coming and ministering to him. You know, this portion of God's word has something else worth noting. In the parallel passage in chapter Luke, Jesus responds to Satan this way, and, he, and it says in chapter 4, verse 8, And Jesus answered him and said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Does this remind us of any other passage that we've heard recently? In last week's sermon, when as part of the setup, we went back and looked at Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus confronts Peter. Jesus rebukes his friend who wants Jesus not to obey God's laid out plan for the deliverance of sin. Matthew 16 verse 20 says that from this excuse me from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And of course, what does Peter do? He doesn't shout it. It says this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And Jesus' response is this. It says, He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. People of God, sometimes Satan uses people close to us to direct us to worship idols. Do not fall into their godless advice. Have you ever noticed that, you know, how easily swayed politicians can be? Right? They can hold one position their whole career. And then all of a sudden, what happens? They switch. What's the most common reason for that? Because their children have fallen into the position that they were against. So the question would be, 
for that politician, who is their God? They're worshiping their children above worshiping the Almighty. You know, that happens in the church too, right? People hold positions, they're sticking with God's word, and then when their kids fall into a particularized sin, I'm not going to discipline them, I'm not going to call them to repentance, I'm not going to do these things. And they are then worshiping their children over the Almighty God. Don't fall into temptations. Don't fall into others driving you to disobey God and to worship any other idol, but worship only the living God. You know, Satan tempts us in the same ways. We need to follow Jesus to overcome sin and grow into faithful maturity. Satan uses the same strategy and tactics against you, listen up, to kill you. Satan uses these same tactics and strategies to kill you that he used against Adam, Israel, and Jesus. He wants you to get you to focus on your needs. And then you sin when you do whatever you need to to meet them. He gets you to think that God is not faithful and that his word is not trustworthy. And so you feel cheated. You arrogantly think you didn't get the results that you thought you deserved. Satan tempts us to seek our own glory. So you compromise and you take shortcuts that you believe will get you there sooner. God's purpose through His Son, Jesus Christ, is to make you and I like Jesus. We are to be conformed by the work of the Spirit to be like Jesus. Think of this. Whose word is the word of truth? Satan or God's? You know, your life hangs in the balance based off of how you answer these questions. We defeat Satan by believing and obeying every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We defeat Satan by trusting God and not putting him to the test. We defeat Satan by worshiping and serving God alone. Satan flees in defeat. You must fight with worship and prayer. Believe God's word and obey. You and I, we don't deserve God's mercy and grace because we're sinners. But God called you and has claimed you in your baptism that you are his people. Lent is a time where we are reminded to repent. You know, one of my favorite theologians, he says this, Whatever doesn't kill you gives you time to repent. So let us repent. The result of Jesus' faithful enduring is that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Satan has lost his dominion. He can no longer deceive the nations prior to Jesus like he could prior to Jesus' coming. But he can only go about as a roaring lion coming upon a sleepy person who he catches unaware that he may devour him. Now, I've got to tell you, that's probably not how you've normally heard that, that verse quoted. So always, watch out. He's going to get you. He's going to get you. He has no power. All he can do is roar like he's something. And yes, if you fall to his temptations, if you are unaware, if you are sleepy, then yes, he can sneak up and he can devour you. 
Let us be admonished by 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him in steadfast faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, established, and strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you teach us these things. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our willfulness. Forgive us for pretending that we know better than you. Forgive us for listening to Satan's whisperings. Forgive us for believing his lies. Help us, O Lord, to remember your word and to trust in you and to thank you for your faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of the great cloud of witnesses that have come before us. O Lord, help us to love you and to trust you with all our heart and deliver us from evil and the evil one for Jesus' sake. Amen.